Fashion is something that by its very nature is often changing. Designers show multiple collections a year to keep pace with the seasons, changing trends and time itself. Fashion has always been a powerful tool in society especially in the 20th century, in which modern fashion became a tool of self-expression and individualism. Today, we will be exploring some of our favourite designers that shaped what we think of as fashion today. Trends may change, but the innovations and contributions of these designers continue to be the references upon which most of modern fashion is built, be it on the runways of New York Fashion Week or in the details of the clothing hanging in your closet. From wearable sculpture to 3D pleating, abstract shapes and the art of draping, we will introduce you to who we study to learn about fashion history and who we look to when we want to learn how to construct garments like the masters themselves. Hello and welcome to Threaded Together, a podcast that stitches together home sewing and high fashion. We're your hosts. I'm Tracy. I'm Rebecca. In today's episode, we will be discussing two of our favorite designers to research and learn from, Charles James and Madeline Viennet. This is our eighth episode for Threaded Together, and we are so excited to have you. And we're really thrilled to have you back listening to us again. Right, Sarah Burton's departure from Alexander McQueen. This is a current event that impacts the ever-changing fashion world and dovetails nicely with our research for this episode. What are your thoughts, Rebecca? It's such interesting news, Tracy. First, I want to comment on the serendipitous timing of this announcement since we had been doing some preliminary research and discussing Alexander McQueen potentially as a topic of discussion in this episode. And the day Sarah Burton's departure was announced, I had been listening to the Dressed podcast at your recommendation, Tracy, on Mm -hmm. the Mind, Mythos and Muse exhibit featuring McQueen's work. Mm Mm-hmm. What makes this discussion so interesting is that the McQueen brand is one of the only two late 20th, 21st century designers to have their own label become a brand that lives on past their death, the other being Vivian Westwood. Okay, so the Mind, Mythos, and Muse collection positioned McQueen's work as fine art, showing both the references to historical movements and fashion, juxtaposed against works from the museum collection that cover similar topics. When Sarah Burton took over McQueen, her references and inspiration became McQueen's historical work itself, Mm -hmm. as one would expect, carrying through lines to previous collections and inspiration. Now, Tracy, one of the first things you and I did when we launched this podcast was visit the Alexander McQueen exhibit at on Bond Street at the, the top of their shop there mm-hmm. that shows the most extraordinary examples of how Burton not only referenced Lee McQueen's work, but deeply understood his ideas and helped translate them in different ways and evolve them over time. However, you know, fashion doesn't happen in a vacuum and the Alexander McQueen brand is owned by Caring, the conglomerate that also owns Gucci and has been very vocal about chasing the profitable coattails of the LVMH group. Um, So this is all to kind of discuss what's happening behind the scenes that might have motivated Sarah Burton to leave. So a note on kind of that outside funding idea. It's a very common practice even today. A great history of how and why McQueen joined what was the Gucci group at the time is outlined in a phenomenal co-biography of him and John Galliano called Gods and Kings, which I highly recommend. Mm Mm-hmm. Getting this funding can be crucial to a brand's survival, but it can also go terribly wrong. And a good example of a modern brand that actually bought 
back all of its stake after disliking the direction that a partner was having them go in is New York-based label Prenza Schooler. So back to the question of the Sarah Burton departure, I share all of this background on funding and ownership since I think we actually have two separate things at play here in the discussion of what should happen to the McQueen brand next. Mm-hmm. On one hand, you have the McQueen legacy of elevating fine art in fashion, the Sarah Band Foundation, which supports young artists and designers. And then on the other hand, you have McQueen the brand, which is owned by Caring. And that's purpose is fundamentally to make more money. (laughs) So (laughs) while I'm sad to see Sarah Burton go, we also have kind of seen a watering down of her ideas. And I think McQueen's over time and during the tenure that she's been there. And the brand is honestly, in my opinion, really commercial at this point, which I wouldn't say is her fault in the slightest, since I do think the brand decisions are driven largely by the conglomerate. Oh, wow. Okay. So in terms of what next, what would you like to see? I would love to see the brand and focus more on McQueen's legacy, perhaps doing something like what the late Albert Albaz A to Z collection has been doing with rotating designers until they find the right fit. Mm-hmm. A lot of the names that I've been seeing tossed around on social media might have a surface level similarity to McQueen's uh, previous aesthetic. But I think what was truly unique to what Alexander McQueen brought to the brand was his ability to distill his experiences in artistic references down and translate them through a garment in a way that makes you question whether fashion should be considered fine art. And that's what you're really taught in like fashion schools. Um, But it doesn't really sell the handbag, let's be honest. (laughs) Um, So we'll see what happens. But I think the future, unfortunately, will probably be more aligned with building Alexander McQueen, the brand to the detriment of the Alexander McQueen legacy. And that's a very long winded answer to that, Tracy. What do you think of the recent news? (laughs) Well, thank you for sharing those thoughts with us. There's there's a lot to unpick there. Firstly, um, a side note, I'm really enjoying reading Gods and Kings at your recommendation. Oh, good. Uh, Yeah, it's brilliant. And I also enjoyed and highly recommend the documentary Kingdom of Dreams, which overlaps a lot with the book. Absolutely. Um, Yes, it does. Um, And you're absolutely right that Burton has truly honoured McQueen. And I just really hope that the new direction continues to honour McQueen. I love the idea of rotating designers. I guess we just have to wait and see. We are really excited to talk about today's topic. But as always, before we get into that, what have you been working on in the last month, Tracy? Oh, well, I got a pleating machine recently. Um, it looks a little bit like a pasta maker, but with ridges on it, <laughs> <laughs> ridges on the rolls. So, and you roll your fabric through it and there's needles um, that are threaded up and it creates these tiny, beautiful pleats. Um, so I wanted to try that out. Um, I made a sage brush top, which is a pattern by Friday Pattern Company because it's quite a simple sew but it's got a nice front yoke at the top and I thought that that would demonstrate the pleating and the smocking um, beautifully yeah it's like it's quite a precise thing to set up and to um, thread through and a bit of a labour intensive process to thread up all the Mm -hmm. needles Um, but it was really quite fun interesting tool to use and um, 
I mean, I definitely could benefit from some more practice, <laughs> but I'm quite happy. I'm really happy with the results of it. And I'm looking forward to incorporating it into some more makes in the future. That sounds amazing. And I can't wait to see what else you make with it. I know I've only seen some of your samples, but I mean, we probably could even do an episode on pleating itself. It's such an art form. So that's that's really neat that you're learning how to do that. Anything yep. else you have been up to? Um, so we also made a couple of summery dresses and we have had some sunshine. I think it's gone now um, where I could enjoy mm. wearing them. <laughs> but that's, that's it. I think it was still a productive sewing month. Uh, what about you, Rebecca? What have you been up to? I'm not sure I would say it has been as productive of a sewing month for me. Um, I have still been working on on the same thing I was last month, the Dior bar jacket inspired piece. And what a learning curve. I did this huge half circle collar and it Mm -hmm. took me about three days to get it attached and shaped properly. It's going to officially be a couture piece at this point since it's not only made to measure, but it also now has lots and lots of hand sewing, hand padding. I ended up making my own shoulder pads. It's been an undertaking for sure, but I'm in the home stretch. So fingers crossed it will come to a beautiful conclusion soon. Wow. Well, I know I've been treated to some in-progress pictures, but I can't wait (laughs) for the finished results. Now on to our main topic. We're going to start with one of our favorite designers to study of all time, Charles James. Tracy, you were studying Charles James long before I even started to learn about him. So why don't you kick us off? Oh, uh, yes. Okay. Let's share with our shared favorite historical icon, <laughs> <laughs> Charles James. So Charles James was an English American designer and one of the most influential designers of the 20th century. One day, um, I'd love to do a full episode on him, but today <laughs> we'll touch on some of these highlights. Charles James influenced many designers. Christian Dior called his designs poetry. Balenciaga said that he, quote, raised haute couture from an applied art form to a pure art form. He was an inspiration to Halston. Rick Owen said that his fall-winter 2011 collection was a, quote, ripoff of his Eiderdown jacket. And Elia said, if I met Charles James, I'd pass out at his feet. He invented so much. He started as a milliner in hat making, there is lots of work around the manipulation of the materials so that it fits the spherical shape of the head. In millinery, there's a concept of blocking, where you work with lots of heat and steam to be able to mould the shape of the fabric to a wooden hat block. Tracy, that's so interesting because I think some other absolute icons started out with hats. Think Chanel and, of course, famously Halston. Yeah, that's right, isn't it? And and I guess millinery um, requires sculptural understanding and appreciation of a hat from all angles. And this certainly shaped his work. Came across this wonderful quote, (laughs) and I I don't know who it's by. I will have to look it up and put it in the show notes. Um, But it said that the millinery made James inclined to pull and contort and deform materials to submit to his will. Oh, I love that. And James was also inspired by and collected military uniforms and turn-of-the-century fencing jackets, which he kept with notes that they were for the analysis of the armhole and the sleeve and to study the movement in seemingly tight-fitting garments. The exhibition in 2014, Beyond Fashion, showed a design with a high-cut armhole mirroring that of a military sleeve, except the grain. So typically, if you think about a sleeve, you'd have a straight grain at the top of the armhole all the way down to the wrist. But in James's version, the straight grain originated 
at a two o'clock point of the armhole. So more in line with the natural angle of the arm as you have it at rest. Oh, that's so interesting. Lots of James's dresses had structure, but were finished with what was quote called seductive drapery. Some are reported to have weighed up to 50 pounds and Tracy, that's 22 kilograms, I think. The way that they were engineered and rebalanced made them still wearable. It definitely did. And in the genius of Charles James, there is this incredible illustration of all the layers of the four-leaf clover ball gown. And it includes, and I don't think I can even list them all, but it includes an underbodice, <laughs> boning, mesh, petticoat, under petticoat, slip, peplums, blouses, and all of those adding to create this incredible shape. And Tracy, you sent me the photo of that and also the amount of materials used and the innovative mm-hmm. materials used for the time frame was really interesting in that as well. Uh, yeah, completely agreed. So James had his own system of pattern cutting designed from the body out, addressing the female form as a series of volumes and measurements. Jan Reader of the Brooklyn Museum Collection said that he developed his own methodology based on mathematical, architectural and sculptural concepts as they relate to the human body. James said, a cut in dressmaking is like grammar in language. A good design Mm. should be like a well-made sentence and it should express only one idea at a time. Ooh, so poetic. So a few of the systems that James used included the waist was cut on the curve. So it was cut anatomically rather than as a straight horizontal. He bypassed bus darts. Instead of a dart, he would have many pattern pieces convergent at the bus point. Resulted in a lot of those gorgeous curved seams on a lot of the jackets, didn't it? It's where the dart would have been. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a way of handling those. Yeah, it's fabulous. And then there's all these hidden details as well. So he inserts pockets and seam lines and pleats within the construction. He had a term called platitudes, which is defined as flat pieces on part of a pattern piece to find lines on the body that can become the seam lines in a garment. And he created a contoured ruler from an existing pattern piece measured from the body and used to encircle the body. And we'll talk about one of his pieces later. And I think his sleeve is a true example of this platitude in, in that in that mm. dress. Um, he also conceived new seam placements for shoulders and straps and belts. He coined the term metamorphology to indicate the design could evolve from one to another. So for example, a sleeve from a jacket would form into a dress. So different seamings give the impression of a different garment. And he also <laughs> used a square tabletop where the squares helped to measure the evolution of design between the passing cutting table and the stand. So the table would have three grain lines. So black for the straight grain, red for the cross grain and green for the bias. And this easily allowed the grid to be transferred to muslins. And if you see images of some of his work, you can see the the same markings on on the muslins as well. So there's this beautiful green dress in the V&A, which I am completely obsessed by. I I can't visit the V&A without stopping by this dress. It's a Charles James dress from 1938, 39. And the more you look at it, the more you see. It's in this gorgeous silk printed fabric with masks on it. It's in this incredible shape where the sleeves on the dress spiral under the arm and then over the shoulder. And when I say I'm obsessed by this dress, it's no understatement. I think it's the sole <laughs> driver for me taking up pattern cutting so that I could one day <laughs> recreate this dress. The, the vintage inspired fabric shop 
till the sun goes down. At one point, had a viscous crepe fabric called Ruffles and Stars, inspired by the fabric in that dress. And I have a few meters of it in my stash, (gasps) ready for when I've got, you know, the pattern perfected. Um, Amazing. So... Yes, one day, one day. Um, the V&A has got some incredible close-up photos of the dress. And honestly, the V&A website is an incredible resource for all of their collection. As you can see, images of some of the Charles James they have in their collection that are not currently displayed. I mean, I'd love a whole exhibition on Charles James. <laughs> can you imagine? Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> but I think that the Met Museum had one in 2014, which was the basis yeah. of the book we referenced earlier, Charles James Beyond Fashion. And I think that the Brooklyn Museum had one in 1982 with the book, The Genius of Charles James. What a dream. Now, Tracy, what motivated you to become a Charles James devotee was the sheer beauty of his dresses. But what made me absolutely fall in love was his sculptural outerwear, particularly the eider down jacket made of white silk. The Mm -hmm. eider down jacket was a curvaceous puffer jacket that was designed before the Second World War. It was such a stunning piece of work that the famous surrealist Salvador Dali declared it was the first wearable sculpture. Despite being made in 1936, it really didn't gain any international acclaim as a triumph of invention until decades later after its creation, it resurfaced in the 1970s in the era of Halston and the rise of the puffer jacket. We will include photos in the show notes on our website, threadedtogetherpodcast.com. But if you have never seen the Eiderdown jacket before, I strongly encourage you to take a look at it. If you're anything like me, you will think it's one of the most modern, beautiful things that you have ever seen. And it's absolutely mind-blowing to think that this was created almost a century ago. Now, quoting Charles James himself from the book, Charles James, The Couture Secrets of Shape, which is one of my personal personal favorite Charles James books. He had said, quote, I undertook the execution of a design which was to represent both the technical challenge and dumb fantasy, having, as I thought at the time, absolutely no importance to the fashion industry. The design, a white quilted evening jacket, at the time was supposed to substitute for the already commonplace short bulky fur jacket, which was typical of and launched a few years earlier by Elsa Scaparelli and was worked much in the same way that eider down bed quilts are worked. Oh, it's interesting. And to think that was the first puffer jacket. Mm. Now, as Tracy, as you said earlier, this monument of design not only inspired famous designers that followed directly after James, it is still referenced by current designers such as Rick Owens, who credits James with heavily influencing his work. It's a personal goal of mine, similar to your dress, Tracy, to recreate the Eider Down jacket at some point. And when I was rereading the Couture Secrets of Shape, which is the best documentation of specifically the Eider Down jacket that exists anywhere else. And we've done a lot of research. I was <laughs> struck by a paragraph written by James I hadn't noticed earlier. He said, quote, the sleeve is cut in one with the front panel of the jacket. This cut is referred to vaguely and incorrectly as a semi kimono cut. And it necessitates the insertion of a shaped gusset at the bottom edge of the armhole. Mm-hmm. Now, while this line may seem innocuous enough, Tracy will remember the jacket that I had drafted uh, from my couture 
Couture Patterns book had this exact same shape of sleeve being one piece for the front of the jacket and the sleeve and it required a gusset. And for a brief moment, that little light bulb went off and I realized... I just might have a base to start with mm-hmm. from which to start coming up with a shape for the Eiderdown jacket and having that be similar for the jacket that I made for the Barbie premiere, which is just wild to me. I have looked at photos of the Eiderdown jacket so, so many times that I am absolutely positive. It's buried in my subconscious. So even when I had made the choice to hem the sleeve on the jacket that I had made that was similar, it actually ended up looking very close to how the Eiderdown jacket sleeve was hemmed. And I am now just delusional enough to think that it might actually be possible for me to replicate. So on that note, stay tuned. Famous last words. I can't wait to see (laughs) it recreated. There's so many incredible books on Charles James, of which I think we've referenced all our favorites um, already. (laughs) So in the show notes, we'll we'll put links into the, the names of all the books. And we also recommend the Dressed podcast episode on Charles James, which is episode 74, um, which is called Charles James, Genius Deconstructed, an interview with Timothy Long. Oh, that is a fabulous one. I also remember in the Dress podcast about Alexander McQueen, they mentioned the puffer coat from the full 99 Overlook collection was in honour of Charles James or an homage to Charles James. Um, who else references Charles James on the runway, Rebecca? Yes, I looked up that collection at your prompting, Tracy, and the puffer jackets are clear references to the Eiderdown jacket. The shape is almost exactly the same with a closure in the front, very, very minor changes. Mm-hmm. Charles James's work was so seminal to the modern fashion industry that his influence can really be seen in so many different places. If you look at later McQueen collections in the shaping of shoulders and the waist, and even in the way that McQueen even just did a lot of his jackets without shoulder seams, you can see even more interesting thread lines of the influence that James had on McQueen. One of the most famous inspirations, of course, is Christian Dior is said to have been inspired by Charles James's reinterpretation of the Victorian era silhouette when he created the new look, which is quite possibly one of the most influential moments in 20th century fashion. The new look featured a nipped in waist, an organic curve to a jacket and a full circle shaped flare at the bottom of the jacket or a skirt. Speaking to current trends for this upcoming year, we've seen the oversized blazer shape that was so popular shift and find the waist of the wearer, creating a more figure hugging shape that is always mentioned alongside a reference to Dior's infamous creation, which was, again, a reference to James. Mm -hmm. So you can see how the influence of Charles James through different designers over time is pretty pervasive. Earlier, we also mentioned the specific influence of the Eiderdown jacket on Rick Owens. But not only was that influence shown in the mid-2010s, it also recently reappeared in his fall 2023 collection with a series of jackets that explored very 
obvious referential silhouettes to the famous James creations a little bit out of proportion and oversized. And I'll definitely include some links in the show notes. You will absolutely see how those are very clear references. Now, Tracy, when we first began discussing this episode, I was thinking of which designer silhouettes and shapes reminded me of Charles James and Terry Mugler kept popping into my mind. So I did a quick little Google search and there wasn't much, but just an interview with the designer. And he explained that Charles James was a major reference without going into too much detail. But I was looking through the Kyoto Costume Institute's fashion history book, and there was a stellar two-page spread on Mugler's curved shoulder jacket series, one of which being the very famous rainbow colored jacket. Mm -hmm. And while the book cites the jackets just saying they're typical of the quote, like 80 sharp downward triangular silhouette. If you actually look at the seaming of the jackets, the curved single piece of the front of the jacket into the sleeve, you see perhaps some of the clearest modern direct references to James's innovation of the arc sleeve, as well as the organic curve shaping of the jackets that James created. We chose Charles James for this episode because we love to study his work, but we are very very much in good company with most modern designers and anyone who loves fashion and fashion history. And Charles James is a hard act to follow. But the other designer that we are covering today is Madeleine Viennet. Yes, Madeleine Viennet, who is famous for transforming the use of the bias cut, extending it to the dress as a whole. The dresses she created are these beautiful, free-flowing garments that completely flatter the body, known as the queen of the bias cut and the architect among dressmakers, the inventor of a cut with a slash or a triangle insertion, the halter neck and the cow neckline, as well as the founder of technique of designing through drape rather than by sketch. Wow. Influential indeed. A quick insertion for anyone who's unfamiliar of what a bias cut is. It's rather than having a garment's fabric hang vertically or horizontally, you hang it on the body at a 45 degree angle, or also known as the bias, which takes advantage of the part of the fabric that gives the most stretch, um, which allows the fabric to better accommodate the natural curves of the body in a more elegant way. Yeah, and the result of a bias cut is so spectacular. VNA inspired so many and is often considered one of the most influential female designers of the 20th century. Balenciaga named her as his master. Christian Dior said that with her, the art of couture was never taken further or higher. Azadine Elia, Izzy Miyake, and Vivian Westwood, as well as Yoji Yamamoto, all paid homage to her through their work. VNA was on a continued search for cohesion between the body and the dress, favoring the natural body as the guiding motif in any design. She truly treated the body as a subject. She liked to say, when a woman smiles, her dress should smile with her. She took her inspiration from early civilizations like the Greek antiquities, where you can see the principle of draping material on the body and leaving it free to move and glorify natural curves. And let me tell you, when I read this, I gasped because I love the study of ancient Greece. And if you think oh, about the female sculptures from, I don't know, the pediment of the Parthenon and the way the dresses drape beautifully on, on the females, you can totally see the link. 
So that makes both of our designers that we're covering today, Tracy, sculpture aficionados, which might lead us to believe that fashion is the new sculpture. What do you think? <laughs> Perhaps. V&A invented new cutting techniques, which greatly contributed to the liberation of women's body from the corset. She felt it was important for women to be liberated from superfluous fancy and be able to dress without the age of a maid. v liked to start from a simple, basic geometrical shape, like a square or a triangle or a circle, and then build a structure from that using the natural anchoring point on the body, like the shoulders and the waistline, and play with the shape on the stand. The Kirk book on v breaks out the chapters, um, interestingly, by rectangles and quadrants and triangles and shows different dresses that fall into those Ooh, categories. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> it's so, it's okay. so interesting to see them grouped. To quote the v in an article that we'll link, she was a master geometrician. Her bias cut garments may appear simple, but their cut and construction are in fact complex and always immaculately executed. So Vina worked with a wooden mannequin about 80 centimetres high, um, which is roughly the size of a half scale mannequin. But this one had like a head and a face, so it looked a bit more like a dog, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> um, there's some pictures that you can find of, of her working with it. And the, this mannequin, she placed it on a rotating piano stool. Um, and so then she'd use half size trials to drape with. So obviously the beauty of working in that scale is that you can try out ideas. It's much easier to manipulate and handle the fabric on a smaller scale. And then mm. once an idea had taken form, the pattern pieces would be sketched out and then scaled up to size. Um, so obviously working on the bias is really fabric hungry. Um if you think about how much you get out of a bias when you're working on a on a standard width, that you, you do hit trouble quite quickly. So VNA worked with fabric mills, um, so specifically in Lyon, where she, she worked with, where they wove the cloth of an especially wide width for her bias cuts. So there's a few incredible books on VNA. Some of them are out of print and harder to track down. Um, the first is a book by Betty Kirk, which is absolutely beautiful, but definitely not in print anymore. It's got over 400 photos and sketches and high-level pattern pieces for some of her designs. What we can do is link to a couple of blog posts where people have attempted to recreate the dresses from the book. And so you can get a nice snapshot of what the book looks like in, in their blog posts. So the book is complemented by a Japanese sewing book, V&A, um, Japanese dress pattern book, um, which is in Japanese. but um, the pictures are really self-explanatory and complement the book, the Kirk book really well because the pattern pieces are on grid and lines and it makes it much easier to then use that to scale up. You can practice in a smaller form if you choose or at full size if you fancy, just trying a few simple math calculations. <laughs> Have you tried this in practice before, Tracy? <laughs> yes. So on a pattern cutting class, we were given this incredible exercise where um, we were given the Japanese pattern layout alone. <laughs> and we had to work out what the garment would look like and how the pattern pieces went together Um from this flat lay plan and it was such a fun and tricky and difficult exercise um, but made us really think outside the box as to how everything went and then after that we kind of scaled it up and you know tried making it in half half scale it was a really uh, really excellent exercise oh 
How fabulous. That sounds mm-hmm. like the kind of puzzle I would actually enjoy doing. <laughs> <laughs> it, that was one way you benefited from um, a few of you working on the same thing because the pieces just weren't like anything you could imagine um, and it would take to make a dress. It was just a really w- good way of working. Um, Mm, there's also a really great study of one of her dresses in exploding fashion and which is an incredible book, um, and looks at six designers and attempts to reverse engineer a garment from each. And there's a Charles James in that book as well, isn't there, Tracy? That's right. Yep. Yep. It's a really lovely book. Um, and one more book to mention as well is, um, a version edited by Pamela Golbin. Um, and we'll link each of these in the books and articles and the show notes if you're interested in some reading up some more on VNA. Tracy, are there any particular VNA pieces that you've studied that you want to mention? Well, I find that I find that the, with VNA, the more you look at any any of the pieces, the more there is to learn and take away. Mm. And just find it's so every piece is wonderful. Um, I've spent quite a lot of time looking at one of the 1935 dresses that was made in a white wool. And then the one that I mentioned earlier that I looked at in a class was a 1933 gold silk satin crepe dress. And it has this front hem extension that loops back to the hem um, to complete the back skirt. And it's got a self bra, which the front bodice is draped over and then gathered into the skirt. And what about you? Do you have a, a favourite, v Well, I was looking through the Costume Institute's VNA collection online. I think the the New York Met, and one of the things that jumped out at me was how incredibly modern each piece looked for garments that are almost a hundred years old. And we'll definitely link a lot of these collections that do have digital archives, so that you can take a look. Mm-hmm. There are just so many novel ideas, uh, like an empire waist dress done in a way that takes it out of kind of that historical context, makes it feel very easy and fluid, something that Givenchy famously referenced, and then later Vivian Westwood, and perhaps equally famously, the queen for Givenchy and John Galliano also referenced it for Dior. Mm-hmm. So lots of through lines of fashion history there. When we think of more modern designers that are famous for draping, uh, Halston, of course, springs to mind. He openly cites VNA as one of his biggest influences. In fact, flipping through the Mets catalog, there were so many dresses that if they had been in jersey instead of silk, I would have sworn they were Halston. Mm-hmm. But it's also the mastery of VNA that she was able to create such ease in a silk garment with absolutely no real stretch, just using the bias. And then Halston. Halston was later able to evolve that from a materials perspective uh, later in the century. Another look that I was taking a peek at that really caught my eye in the Met collection was uh, a cape from 1933 that v had created. And I'll link that also in the show notes. The fabric of the cape is shaped like a fitted hood around the head and then drapes forward on the body. But it has just an absolutely singular kind of impression and appearance. I found a V&A quote that I loved from the slightly dated Take It With a Grain <laughs> of Salt book, the <laughs> McDowell's Directory of 20th Century Fashion, which also happens to be a favorite book of Alexander McQueen, but that's for another episode. <laughs> but anyway, V&A is quoted saying, you must dress a body in fabric, not construct a dress. Interestingly, the author also goes on to equate the philosophy of that quote 
to, at the time, the emerging influence of Japanese fashion designers. And going back to the Kate piece, if I showed it to you today and asked you who designed it, you'd likely say someone like Ray Kawakubo for Comme des Garcons or any of her contemporaries at the time. Another great reference is the fashion history book, which includes pieces from the collection of the Kyoto Museum uh, Costume Institute. And they explain that V&A was interested in Japanese uh, apologies, I'm going to butcher this pronunciation, in Japanese ukiyo-e paintings and kimonos and collected them. And those influenced her work as well. One of the V&A pieces that's referenced in that book is a dress out of silk crepe with a straight silhouette and a boat neck. But what makes it so special is it's covered in small, all over wavy pattern pin tucks to quote, look like the mark of a rake in the sand garden of a Japanese Zen temple. In addition to inventing drape on the bias, V&A was also a pioneer of fabric folding and mastery to create structural features for decoration. And that, again, is something that we usually associate with 1980s onward and the influence of many designers such as Isimiyaki or again, Rei Kawakubo. It, it just goes to prove how modern and forward thinking she was that her designs are still relevant and being referenced today. Absolutely. Wow. What an inspiring episode, Tracy. I know. (laughs) Amazing. We've covered so much. (laughs) And so many things still where I feel like we've only covered the tip of the iceberg. So lots more on V&A and Charles James in the future. But what are we working on next, Tracy? (laughs) What are you working on next, Tracy? (laughs) Well, I mean, this episode has definitely inspired me to look at that green (laughs) dress again and where I got to with the pattern pieces. Um, But as we head into autumn, I'm completely obsessed by the Dunya jacket from the latest Fiber Mood magazine. Ooh, what does that one look like? So it's this loose-fitting, casual um, jacket that's slightly oversized and um, with rounded slits on the side. So it's quite comfy to wear um, mm. and it's lined and it just looks like a nice autumnal um, jacket to, to work with. I think they're refreshed to be able to buy it. <laughs> it's just, um, <laughs> completely obsessed by it. Um, I, um, I also really like the look of the Freddy jacket by Bella Loves Patterns, which is quite a new pattern, but it's quite a Chanel jacket vibe to it. And that's Ooh. something that would be quite fun to get stuck into. Um, mm-hmm. so I'll see where, you know, where my next makes take me <laughs> what, about, what about you Rebecca I was watching too much Project Runway <laughs> so I of course I'm going to you know you have fests in Germany it's fest season it's always fest season in Germany uh, and I like Oktoberfest type stuff yeah, yeah 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 but it's they're not they're all different kinds so it's yeah. called like Volksfest I have this like gorgeous like vintage journal but I've already wore it to like the spring fest <laughs> so <laughs> I had been watching Project Runway and I was like, I woke up and Monday morning, I needed something to like get me in the right headspace. So I was like, I think I'm going to do a modern take on a journal. That sounds exciting. But it'll be done by like Saturday. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> and speaking of next month, we have a rather fun topic for our next episode that I think is very timely considering the changing seasons in the Northern Hemisphere and how much time we are about to spend indoors. Mm-hmm. We will be discussing 
everything we wish we knew when we started sewing. All the top tricks, tips, and especially all the machines and things that you do not need when you get started. I think that's so important, Tracy. And I am so excited for that episode. And before our next episode, if you have any thoughts, comments, ideas, or questions, or any specific requests regarding our next episode, you can always find us on social media at Threaded Together Podcast, on threadedtogetherpodcast.com, and newly also on YouTube. In the meantime, I'm Tracy. And I'm Rebecca. And this has been the Threaded Together Together Podcast. (laughs) See you next time. Looking forward to our next episode in a month. Make sure you give us a thumbs up on Apple Podcast or follow us on Spotify. You can find more details on what we discussed today in the show notes below or on threadedtogetherpodcast.com. And for more behind the scenes and regular updates, you can find us on all social media channels at Threaded Together Podcast.